When I was a little kid, my whole family, grandparents included, packed into a Dodge caravan and went on a two-week road trip to Wyoming. We saw the rodeo in Cody, a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, and an epic thunderstorm near Devil's Tower. On that trip, I fell in love with the West and the natural world. This might sound cheesy, but it kind of made me who I am today. Wyoming has it all. Breathtaking hikes, kid-friendly museums, two of the coolest national parks in the country. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. I'm ready. Okay, good. Do you know what we're talking about? No, no idea. Do you know anything about cone snails? (laughs) (laughs) So cone snails are a genus of about 700 meat-eating mollusks. They eat meat? Yeah. Uh, But we'll get to that in a minute. They're sea snails, and they range from about less than an inch long to about nine inches, so they can get pretty big. These organisms live on or in coral reefs. And their shells are super cool looking. They're like little works of art. They've got all sorts of different patterns, colors, stripes, polka dots. One species shell uh, from Conus sedanuli, which is known as the matchless cone because of its matchless beauty. It's sold in Holland in 1796 at an auction. And at this auction, the same time, there was a Vermeer painting. The cone snail shell went for more than five times as many guilders as the Vermeer. (laughs) Um, And this, by the way, is a guy named Ari Bernstein. He's a pediatrician uh, and associate director of the Center for Health and the Global Environment at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. We have to start a campaign for, like, title shortening. They gotta cut that back. (laughs) Anyway, when I was talking to Ari, he posed this very fascinating question. Uh, Cone snails, uh, as I mentioned, are meat-eating mollusks. So how does a snail that's as slow as a proverbial snail catch a fish? Fish? Yeah, yeah. Cone snails have these long sort of trunk-like snouts. And inside, there's a teeny harpoon. So a fish swims by and pew! It sticks the fish. And on that harpoon are somewhere between 200 and 300 peptides that completely um, destroy the nervous systems of the prey that they hit. So um, it takes a matter of seconds for a cone snail to completely immobilize a fish. And then they swallow them whole for dramatic effect. So neurotoxin. Yeah. And in some of the larger species, these peptides are so powerful, they can kill a person which is why you'll frequently see cone snails featured on those nature documentaries like Deadliest Creatures in the Sea. The Cone Snail. (laughs) But scientists have discovered that these same poisons that can kill an adult person can be used as an incredible tool. In the 1980s, they developed a new type of painkiller called a ziconotide from a single peptide in a single species of cone snail. Now, this painkiller is 1,000 times more powerful than our most powerful opiates. More importantly, it doesn't produce tolerance, so you don't have to keep ramping it up. And this drug is now successfully used to treat people with AIDS or cancer who are suffering from the very worst types of chronic, unmanageable pain. For anyone who has had chronic pain, taken care of someone with chronic pain, the idea that a single drug could actually alleviate it entirely is mind-blowing. So this is what we're talking about today, 
cone snails? Actually, the cone snails were a red herring designed to get you excited about another story. So we're not talking about cone snails. No, today we're talking about this connection between modern medicine and the natural world. And it is a story that is going to take us back to the Jim Crow South to see how a black man fought incredible odds to become one of the most prominent chemists of his time and whose work paved the way for the birth control pill. By the way, I'm Sam Evans-Brown, and this is Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. And this is senior producer Taylor Quimby. Hi. (laughs) So where do we go from here? Uh, So first, there's a bit of terminology you're going to need to know. In the language of medicine, drugs that come from nature have this vague, corporate-sounding euphemism. They're called natural products. And one of the people who looks for them is a guy named Barry O'Keefe. He's chief of the natural products branch at the National Cancer Institute. And his job is basically to look for bioactive molecules, uh, which is a fancy way of saying it's a molecule that comes from nature and does something. <laughs> like anything. In us. Yes. It could be an effect on people, but it also could be effect on an infectious disease. Uh, bioactive molecule could be used to... Um, you know, try and reduce the number of barnacles that attach to ships if you add it to paint, you know. Yeah, it's a molecule that does a thing to a thing that's alive. Exactly. But someone like Barry O'Keefe isn't worried about trying to get rid of barnacles. Barry O'Keefe is trying to cure cancer. So here's what that looks like. First, researchers head out into nature to collect thousands and thousands thousands and thousands and thousands of samples. Plants, marine animals, microbes. Next, each and every one of these samples is ground up or mixed with fluid to create an extract. Imagine a giant laboratory spice rack. Next, scientists take these extracts and they test them. They put them next to cancer cells. They put them next to human enzymes or antibodies. They basically put these extracts in petri dishes with lots of other stuff and they wait to see what happens. And if something interesting happens, then the hard part starts. Then chemists, natural products chemists, go about the effort of isolating the active component out of the thousands of molecules in that extract. Now, is this process a little bit like throwing spaghetti at the wall? I mean, is it, you know, is it just... (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly it. We can't predict what molecules will be in all of these extracts. Um, The NCI repository here in Frederick has over 220,000 different extracts. Um, And so each of those extracts has thousands of molecules. Good God. I mean, it's just... All right. I have have a couple of questions that might be derailing questions. No, no, no. Go for it. I mean, are are there just like squads of guys going out being like, (laughs) that looks good. Like, I'm going to grab this leaf. Uh, Well, first of all, Going out and finding stuff to bring back to the lab is called bioprospecting. Like like prospecting like you're a miner. Exactly. My first thought was like, is this like Indiana Jones? Yeah. Sort of with his whip and a Petri dish, like going out into the jungle and pulling the stuff back. And there is an element of truth to that. But finding the drug is only half the battle. The other half is making enough of the drug to actually treat people. Now, you're probably thinking, why couldn't they just recreate this molecule from scratch? Now that we've discovered it, let's just grab some beakers and we'll mix up a synthetic version in the lab. But when I say bioactive molecule, 
You're probably thinking of that stuff you learned in chem class. Molecules like H2O, two hydrogen, one oxygen, or CO2, one carbon, two oxygen, which are made up of three atoms. A single molecule of the cone snail peptide we use as a painkiller is made up of 349 separate atoms glued together in an incredibly complex configuration. 102 carbon, 172 hydrogen, 36 nitrogen. Sometimes, like in the case of the cone snail peptide, we actually do figure out how to make these big wacky molecules in the lab. But in many cases, science hasn't caught up with the complexity of nature. So what do we do then? What we do is we hack the natural world. You see, there are common plants that contain the basic building blocks we need to make complicated drugs. With a little sunlight and some water, these plants can perform all of the complicated chemical steps we don't yet understand. So what we do is we take these plants, we grow them in bulk, and we harvest them just like you would for food, and then we use them as the raw materials for our most complicated molecules. When you say common plants, are we talking about, like, potatoes? More like beans. Like black beans? Taco beans? Pinto beans? Magic beans. Magic beans. <laughs> okay, you're going to find out soon enough what kind of beans. Mm. Because the next part of this story is all about how we use these raw materials. And it starts with a guy named Percy LeVon Julian. Have you ever heard of him? Uh, 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 no. Four pregnant, uh, three 11 Percy Julian was a renowned black chemist, born in 1899 in Montgomery, Alabama. He loved to tell stories. That's his granddaughter, Kathy. He uh, had a very easy smile, very bright smile. He played the piano. Was kind of the life of the party. And he was obsessed with plants. Even neighbors would talk about the yard that, particularly in the spring, my grandfather loved to plant tulips. Hundreds and hundreds of tulips. And so these, these fascinating laboratories of the plant really make the psalmist's words true. Consider the lilies of the field. They toil not, neither do they spin. And later in his career, he, uh, he focused on using the products made by plants to make drugs. And yet Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. That was him? That was him. He's got a, he's very sonorous. He is. Oh, and that other guy is named Stephen Lyons. Hi, uh, is this Steve? Yes. Hey, dear. He's a filmmaker that wrote and produced a documentary about Julian for Nova. And also helping me to tell this story is Sabrina Collins. Can you hear me now? She's executive director of the Marburger STEM Center at Lawrence Technological University. And the recurring themes in Julian's life story are as follows. Racism, perseverance, breakthrough. You know, he grew up in the... The Jim Crow South, you know, born April 11th, 1899 in Montgomery, Alabama. They were not allowed to um, eat in white people's restaurants or drink from their water fountains or use their bathrooms. To give you an idea of, of the challenges that he faced, when he was 12 years old, he ran across a lynch body hanging from a tree. Now, Percy's dad was a railroad clerk, his mother was a school teacher, and both of them believed very strongly in the power of education. But there was a big problem. There were no high schools for African Americans in Montgomery. So for two years after eighth grade, Percy takes classes at a local teacher training school. And based just on that, he manages to get into DePauw University in Greencastle, Indiana. Keep in mind, this is like the 19-teens. He, he discovered soon after he got to DePauw that he was not assigned a dormitory like the other students were. He was assigned a room off campus with a slop jar for a toilet 
He was told that he would have to find his meals somewhere else in town because they weren't going to serve him there in that building. So Percy roams around for a couple of days. He winds up living in an attic of a local frat house. He could live as long as he was willing to do uh, work around the fraternity for the white students. God, America is just like, ugh. Yeah. You, you continue to hear these reoccurring themes of, you know, one challenge after another. In the classroom, he was really struggling to keep up. Remember, he didn't have the high school foundation of the other kids. He actually wrote his parents and told them that he thought they made a mistake sending him to college. These white boys are so much smarter than I, I am. I, I don't know whether I'll ever be able to keep up with them. But his story really is about perseverance, resilience and persistence, you know, because he, he, he kept going. He starts taking remedial classes at the local high school to catch up to his white peers. And then he eventually graduated in 1920, valedictorian of his class. That's an American story right there. Oh, it's just the beginning of an American story. <laughs> Fast forward 10 years, Julian has his master's now from Harvard. He has become the third African-American ever to get a PhD in chemistry. And now he's started his life's work, isolating and producing medicines from plants. So the first thing he does for his dissertation, he isolates the active ingredient in an Austrian shrub called Corydalus cava, used to treat heart palpitations. And those active ingredients are tetrahydrocoptacin, hydrohadrastinin, and canadine. I don't want to frighten those of you who are not familiar with organic chemistry. One hardly expects an organic chemist to be able to speak without his gobbledygook in his language. Uh, so victory number one. Good job. Earns his PhD. After that, Percy comes back to the United States, uh, gets himself into a bit of trouble at Howard University, where he wooed another professor's wife and got canned. And he eventually lands back at his alma mater, DePauw University, as a researcher. Now, he's got a touch of academic scandal on his record, and he really needs a big win to get his career back on track. And that's when he starts in on synthesizing the chemical physostigmine. You say them like they're so meaningful. It's like, oh my God, physostigmine. Chemistry is hard. Chemistry is hard. Physostigmine is a substance derived from a bean called the calabar bean. It's a little brownish, reddish bean that's native to Africa. And this chemical that it contains, physostigmine, is super poisonous. But like the cone snail toxin, when used correctly, it doubles as a type of drug. It was already used in the treatment of glaucoma, the eye disease glaucoma. As a side note, way back in the day, the calabar bean was used in a Monty Python-esque tradition called a trial ordeal, where someone accused of a crime would be forced to eat this, again, super poisonous bean. And if they died, they were guilty. Oh, God. Anyway, the problem is Percy isn't the only scientist trying to isolate this compound that treats glaucoma. There was a very prominent chemist named Robert Robinson at Oxford University. Uh, Robinson would go on to win the Nobel Prize in a few years. And he was working on the synthesis of physostigmine himself. And just before Percy and his colleague Joseph Peekle succeed in being the very first to create physostigmine, Robinson publishes his own synthesis. Ugh. And Julian's like, Damn. I lost. The race is over. Robinson has won. Yeah, I'm totally going to get fired. I've wasted all this time. Might as well go find someone else's wife to woo. Uh, no, he, he married her. Oh, oh, good. Many children. <laughs> Happy ending there. But when he looked at the paper more closely, he realized that the melting point of a, of a key ingredient in the synthesis in Robinson's paper. That melting point wasn't what it was supposed to be. <gasps> 
Robinson had screwed it up. It turned out um, that Julian was right, and he and he and Pico went on to complete the synthesis of physostigmine, and it was a triumph. This is a you know unknown African American scientist from a small college in Indiana, taking on one of the most prominent chemists in the world. It's 1935, and Percy has made himself famous in his field. But despite this, he still gets fired from DuPont. Wait, what? Yeah. So he starts looking for work in the private sector. Both he and Pico were asked to come and interview for jobs at DuPont. A massive chemical company to this day. What's interesting is that they offered his colleague a position, but they simply apologized to him, telling him, we didn't know that you were, you were African-American, that you were Negro. Next, he applies to the Institute of Paper Chemistry in Appleton, Wisconsin. I sent many of my students from DePaul to the Institute of Paper Chemistry in Appleton for their doctor's degree. They were planning to extend him an offer, but Appleton uh, was known as a sundown town, so as an African-American, you could not live or you know stay in that area. Which said that no Negro should be bedded or boarded in the city of Appleton overnight. And so uh, the board met in emergency session to know what they could do with this man to whom they had offered a job. God. Uh, well, this actually ends up being a little bit of good luck, as it would turn out, because the vice president of another company called Glidden Paints was on the board of the Paper Chemistry Institute, and he was like, all right, you paper people are crazy. I'm going to hire this dude. And that is how Percy Julian, grandson of slaves, lands the job of a lifetime. This is 1936, 10 years before Jackie Robinson broke into baseball. And Julian is being offered the directorship of a chemical laboratory at a major industrial company in America. It really is a remarkable thing. And when we come back, Percy's biggest breakthrough. And so I started in on another very fascinating plant, the soybean. We got busy with this soybean. Sam here with a gentle request. If you're a podcast fan, you've probably heard hosts say, leave us a review on iTunes. Well, I'm going to join the ranks and ask the same thing. Please, if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. We really want to know what you think of the show, and the more reviews we have, the more people discover us. Here's what your fellow listeners have had to say so far. Harris502 says, Outside In is a lighthearted yet informative 20 to 30 minutes. It's very well put together, and I'm looking forward to hearing many more episodes. Oh, thanks, Harris. Big Kahuna Burger says, I've really enjoyed every minute, and I love the theme music. Nice shout out to Breakmaster Cylinder there. And Sam EB says, so hot right now. Um, Sam, we, we have to address this. <laughs> what, I, what do you mean? Okay, so on our iTunes, it's kind of embarrassing. The first review of the show, five stars, Sam EB, so hot right now. I don't know who left that. Sam Evans Brown, it's totally you. You reviewed your own show. I mean, it was it was early on. We no one was listening. 
Okay, well, thank you to everyone who's left a review. There are 51 of you now. One of those is Sam, so there are 50 real ones. But we will really want to get to 100. Um, so head over to iTunes. Let us know what you think of the show. All right, thanks. Back to the show. So welcome back. I'm Sam Evans-Brown. You're listening to Outside In, a show about the natural world and how we use it. Producer Taylor Quimby was just telling us a story. We were talking about Percy LeVon Julian, chemist extraordinaire, who just landed himself an incredible, groundbreaking job directing a research lab for the Glidden Paint Company. But before we get back to his story, uh, we need to talk a little bit about hormones. Oh, God. Oh, relax. (laughs) (laughs) And here to explain this bit is Art Greenberg. Professor in the chemistry department at the University of New Hampshire. He was just about to donate a pint of blood when I talked to him. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll give an extra one for you. Okay, good, good. So let's set the scene. It's the mid-1930s, World War II is just around the corner, and never mind cone snail toxins, scientists at this point are only just discovering the hormones and steroids produced inside the human body. One of those hormones that has just been discovered is called progesterone. And all scientists really know about progesterone is that it has something to do with preparing the uterus for childbirth. Which seems super important, so naturally doctors want to investigate. Uh, There's just one big issue. In order to study progesterone, you've got to get your hands on it. And that requires organs. Lots and lots of organs. I thought we were going to say toads. You know, taking an organ, for example, ovaries and taking a vast amount of ovaries, basically grinding them up almost like you'd make a milkshake, and then um, and then basically using various means to extract, uh, using solvents, uh, until you finally got an active material. Let's just move on quickly from that image. Oh, well, I'm sorry, because the next clip is worse. Oh, God. Cow ovaries? Or, you know, like, do you, do you know what... Sure. Um... You know, we, we could be talking about the ovaries of, of pigs. So, for example, from progesterone, uh, the, the company sharing took something like 50,000 sows back in 1934. And from these sows, they removed 625 kilograms. That's about 1,300 pounds of sow ovaries. And from this, from this immense amount of material, they got 20 milligrams of active progesterone. Good Lord. Yeah. The ovaries of 50,000 pigs for less than a thimbleful of progesterone. But that was enough. Was it enough? No, that is not nearly <laughs> enough. That's exactly the problem. That is, you can't research that. You can't treat a patient with a thimbleful of progesterone. This is the state of hormone research in the 1930s when Percy Julian starts working as the director of the Glidden Paints Soya Division. It's one in which we are starting to learn that this stuff is out there, but we have no access to it. No idea how to get it, yeah. Hmm. Or we have an idea how to get it in like the dumbest way imaginable. Okay, so back to our story. The first thing Percy does at Glidden is he isolates and unlocks a powerful component that lives within the otherwise humble soybean. 50% of the weight of the soybean is protein. And what a protein. Percy figures out how to separate massive quantities of this stuff. He calls it alpha protein. And what makes it special is that no other protein that we've known comes so nearly to the basic protein of animals and humans 
as a soybean protein. Now, the reason a paint company is interested in soybeans is because they think this protein can be used to make paints stick better in cold weather. But this alpha protein is the first vegetable protein produced anywhere in the United States, and it also ends up in every freaking product that you could possibly imagine. It was used as a paper coating. It's the chief ingredient in a firefighting foam that servicemen call bean soup. soup. Credited with saving thousands of servicemen on ships during the war. From soybean oil, which is a similar related product, came lecithin. New salad oils and shortenings and margarines and dog Dog food. food. Because you need protein in dog food since you're not going to actually have good quality meat. Guess what? Soybean protein. From soybean meal came plastics, Plastics, linoleum, plywood. You name it, this stuff is everywhere. And then one day, Percy is at the factory where they're separating all these soy proteins and oils. And this guy runs up to him and is like, Dr. Julian, Dr. Julian, there's a vat of soybean oil that's been spoiled. He says, why? The water's leaked into it and it's full of white solids. It's just full of white solids floating around in it. Uh, this, by the way, is a 100,000-gallon tank of soybean oil. Oh. As a waste at that time, $160,000. So Julian is understandably kind of freaking out right now. I said, what? <laughs> then I was over there in a But when he sees it, Percy recognizes the white stuff. It was a substance called stigmasterol, which is a type of steroid produced by soybeans. We centrifuged that oil and got out these white solids and we sold them promptly for $200 a pound. <laughs> this is the difference between geniuses and the rest of us. So I would have just thrown that out. 160 grand down the drain. Let's just, you know, go pour it in the parking lot. We got more money out of the soybean destroyers than we would have gotten out the whole tank of oil. Uh, why? Because the sex hormones could be made from these soybean destroyers. Wait, sex hormones? Yes. Uh, I mentioned that stigmasterol is a steroid. Well, you know what else is a steroid? Progesterone. Also testosterone, estrogen, cholesterol. And since these steroids all have the same basic skeleton, the same underlying chemical structure, scientists can take one steroid, stigmasterol, and transform it into another one, progesterone. So instead of having 50,000 sows to get a thimbleful of this stuff, you can just add water to a vat of soybean goop and pow, you've got it. No pigs necessary. Gluten became a major manufacturer of human sex hormones, uh, not just progesterone, but also testosterone. In fact, they, become, they became one of the largest suppliers of hormones in the world at the time. This is a paint company. <laughs> we got busy with this soybean. So his work here directly led to the creation of the birth control pill. Uh, It dramatically increased access to research and treatment using hormones, testosterone, uh, progesterone. And all of this, all of it comes from the soybean. So then what's his legacy then? I mean, is that where we're, we're headed to next? Well, for me, it keeps coming back to those three themes. Again and again, Percy is confronted by racism. Again and again, he refuses to back down. And again and again, he accomplishes these historic feats using plants to create medicine. His granddaughter, Kathy, told me that around 1950, he bought a house in Oak Park, this very wealthy suburb of Chicago that up until this point was entirely white. And just before they were going to move in, the house, someone you know, broke into the home and poured kerosene um, throughout the home and set it on fire. They repaired the house, they moved in, 
And not too long after that, someone threw a stick of dynamite at the house. And yet my grandfather really was determined he was not going to move. He was going to stay there. At Glidden, Percy went on to synthesize another incredibly important substance from soybeans, a substance that was instrumental in lowering the price of cortisone, a medication for arthritis that was almost impossible to get prior to the 1950s. Once cortisone became more available, I I remember that a woman who had had very severe rheumatoid arthritis uh, sent my grandfather a doll that she had knitted. And then he left Glidden to start his own company, Julian Laboratories, which was this incredibly progressive company at a time where there weren't a lot of role models in science for African-Americans. Because he started his own laboratory, He was able to hire women and people of color, other chemists, give them opportunities that they otherwise would not have had. And Julian went on to become the second African-American and the first African-American chemist to be elected to the National Academy of Science. So I've been trying to think about what Percy's story tells us about medicine today. And what I've come up with is that We've come a long way since we were slaughtering 50,000 pigs for a thimbleful of progesterone. We've discovered tons of new drugs and found more efficient ways of manufacturing them. Cortisone today comes from a type of grass. Progesterone uh, from Mexican yams now instead of soybeans. But when it comes to unlocking these medical secrets hidden in nature, the truth is we haven't come all that far. Barry O'Keefe, the natural products guy at the National Cancer Institute, he told me something that kind of freaked me out a little bit. Sometimes I feel like there's this impression that maybe that we don't, it's not that we know all there is to know, but that, you know, the, the sort of world of molecules and chemistry and organic chemistry is pretty well figured out. But from what I hear from you, I mean, it really <laughs> sounds like... That's uh, not the case at we all. We know nothing. I mean, at this point, um, estimates are that less than 1% of the biome has been evaluated chemically. So greater than 99% of the creatures out there that might be making interesting molecules have never been looked at. So when he says 99% haven't been looked at, does that mean that that there are just scores of molecules, chemicals, compounds that could exist that we don't even know if they exist or don't? Yeah. We wouldn't know about nicotine receptors in the body if no one had discovered nicotine. We wouldn't know about opioid receptors if no one had ever discovered opioids in the first place. So a lot of what we understand about human physiology is also based upon someone discovering an interesting molecule and then figuring how that works. I think I'm starting to get a grip on on what you were wrestling with there in that interview, which is, you know, on the atomic level, we've got the periodic table. Yeah. And it seems so comprehensible. It's like, look, there are the building blocks. And and we know what those do. We know how they interact with each other. But what I think you're saying is that when you go up one level from that, that all of the various combinations of those building blocks, we've just barely scratched the surface. Exactly. And the reason that this is so concerning, the reason it makes me really uneasy, um, well, remember that painkiller that was developed from a cone snail peptide? Yeah. Well, Harvard's Ari Bernstein had this to say about that discovery. So that's one peptide out of probably 200 or 300 in the one species. There are some 700 species. You do the math. We're looking at somewhere between 70,000, 140,000 peptides in this genus. We have studied 
uh, maybe a hundred in any detail um, from about a dozen species. I mentioned that cone snails live on or in coral reefs. Coral reefs are some of the most endangered habitats on Earth. They're also one of the most biodiverse habitats on Earth. Uh, there may be as many as one in 10 species that we can see that are either living on coral reefs or dependent upon coral reefs for their survival. So I knew we were going here. You knew that this was coming up. I knew we were going yeah, here. This, in the end, this is a climate change story. <sighs> it was unavoidable. And it's not an empty threat. We already have examples where compounds that might have been super useful to us have vanished from the face of the earth. Uh, for example, there was this rare type of frog that in the 80s scientists were studying called the gastric brooding frog. It actually carried its babies in its stomach. And there were signs that these frogs produced some sort of magic molecule that might have been used to treat ulcers or gastric disease. But both species of gastric brooding frog, the only ones on Earth, went extinct uh, right at that time. And these frogs could have potentially yielded medical advances in treatment or prevention that we will never obtain because they're gone. You know, I, I make these noises whenever whenever depressing subjects come up, and it's not because it's not because I don't want to go there. Wait, what noises? Mm. Yeah, and it's because like, oh man, it's so easy to feel overwhelmed by when you start to get into what what we could be missing out on. Yeah, so easy. Well, I mean, I I, I saw it this way, which is that this is really an amazing story about. It's just incredible ingenuity of human beings that somebody looked at this deadly fish hunting snail and thought, eh, maybe we could use this poison as a drug is incredible. Yeah. I mean, the fact that we can take a soybean and create a, a human, human sex, sex steroid, yeah, yeah, a human sex hormone, that's crazy. <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. And it's only at the end that we have to take this step back and recognize that some of the crazy discoveries yet to be made are, as we speak, slipping through our fingers. This is where we're headed. This is what we have wrought for ourselves. Yeah, this is where we're headed. There's still amazing stuff on the horizon. Yeah. There's still lots of amazing stuff on the horizon, but we'll never know what could have been. And so these, these fascinating laboratories of the plant really make the psalmist's words true. Consider the lilies of the field. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. Outside In was produced this week by Taylor Quimby with help from me, Sam Evans-Brown, Maureen McMurray, Logan Shannon, Molly Donahue, and Jimmy Gutierrez. OutsideInRadio.org is a website where you can look at pictures and listen to more episodes. iTunes is a place where you can leave a review and help to make this show more popular. You could write something like, Episode 18 was really interesting and only bummed me out at the very end when it turned out to be about climate change. Special thanks to Joan Coyle and Keith Lindblom at the American Chemical Society and to the Julian family for speaking with Taylor and letting us use the incredible tape of Dr. Percy Julian himself. Our theme is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions' David Seste, Joseph C. Smith's Orchestra, Pottington Bear, and Ty Gibbons. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. 
By the way, you are incorrect when you say that the when you're like you're like, oh no, it gets worse. The milkshake of pig organs is the worst image. Is it? Yeah. Oh. I thought the sheer I thought the sheer amount of organs to me was grosser. Like being grossed out is not a quantity thing. It's the image of making a milkshake out of organs that's gross. <laughs> yeah, but the image... but it's like but it's like oh my god, it's bigger. I no like the start the the reaction you get much more reaction from the first one. Yeah, but the image of fifty thousand sets of ovaries like in a pile is really that's what <laughs> that's what I saw. It's like a pile of ovaries, uh, and this the size of that pile grossed me out. Ugh. 